Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Well, you guys are a bit surprised I'm up here this Sunday, uh, two times in a row, you know, he's back, that kind of thing. But uh, I'm going to be concluding the series that I started on change today. And some of you who are visiting, I want to uh, not apologize at the beginning, but say you're at a little disadvantage because I'm going to be drawing off of information that we've been talking about for some time now. So some things that I may say, if you're a visitor, may sound a little fuzzy, and I apologize for that. But this morning, we're going to use this hour to wrap up all that I've been saying for a number of weeks now. So let's take your outlines and your Bibles, and you might turn, first of all, to the book of Titus. And we're going to read a passage, first of all, in Titus chapter 2. And this exhortation that Paul is going to give us in just two verses is really a succinct summary of the direction that every Christian should be headed in. And he says it about as well as it can be said in two verses. And we'll look at chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. It's interesting in Greek, in the present age, it just says in the now. The real now generation are those who live sensibly. It should make sense, the Christian life. And it should be right. And most importantly, it should be godly. Now that is about a succinct a summary of the Christian direction as can be given in Scripture. And for you and for, and, and, uh, for me here this morning, that should be the harbor to which we have set our sails. That's where we're headed. But in heading there, we're also coming from some place. And a succinct summary of from which we have come is found in chapter 3 of the same little letter. And in verse 3, it says, For once we were foolish and disobedient, deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spent our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now that may be less true of you for some and more true of you for others. But there is no person, man or woman, who is in this auditorium here today who hasn't come from the harbor of enslavement to something, to some lust, to some pleasure, there's not one of us who has not been deceived. There's not one of us who has been absolutely foolish. Scott gave us a great testimony of the foolishness of his past. It wasn't sensible. Not for a Christian. And it wasn't right. It was disobedient. And it certainly wasn't godly. But it was deceived. So we are going from one harbor to another harbor. 
But the question is, how? You see, between those two poles and what is not in this little letter is a great deal of time that's in between that journey. How do you move out of one camp and into the other camp? How do you go from being foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved to being one who lives sensibly (laughs) and right and obedient and godly? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning because that change that takes place is an enormous metamorphosis. Far greater than those played out in nature every day. You know when you see the caterpillar go in and spin his cocoon, that ugly old caterpillar, and then just a few months later emerges as this beautiful butterfly and we go, it's a miracle. Let me tell you, that's not near the miracle that I have seen played out in lives where I can take an individual whose marriage is a wreck, whose personal life is totally blind and foolish and deceived and enslaved. And yet over a period of time, he becomes he unravels and when that outer shell falls off, there is this beautiful new life. And that life makes sense all of a sudden. And it looks right to others. And it glows with godliness. Now that is a miracle. That is a true miracle. But how do you change? How does that take place? Over the course of the messages, I've mentioned what I consider kind of the four leading components to change. Let me just mention them to you briefly. The first, of course, is just real obvious. It's all through the Scriptures. It's just the grace and power of God. And You hear that talked about a lot. I've not focused as much on that, but I certainly don't want to underemphasize that. Secondly, I mentioned that a holistic understanding of our salvation, especially that part that theologians call sanctification, and a great understanding of how sanctification occurs is necessary for there to be this metamorphosis, this change. Then we focused on the fact that each one of us has to do heart surgery. We have to adopt at the core of our being the goal of godliness, and we pitted that against the goal of humanity, which is personal greatness. The goal of godliness, if we are to in fact receive the graces of God to change and to become godly. And then the last thing that we talked about last week were those specific disciplines, those activities which we consciously undertake that aid us in actually changing. And last week I enumerated what those disciplines were. Remember, we put them in two categories, the obvious and the not so obvious. The obvious were those things that you hear about, but maybe don't make the association with sanctification like I've been making it. That is worship, and Bible study, and giving, and service, and prayer. Those are the more obvious ones. The ones that are not so obvious, we talked about for some time in the closing of the message last week. Like abstinence. In a world that considers every impulse of the passions of the Spirit to be legitimate and legitimately fulfilled in this world. And the Scripture says no. We talked about environment. The fact that you cannot change apart from a significant spiritual environment. You can have all the resources of God on one side, but if you are in an unwholesome environment, you will not change. We talked about simplicity. Having a singularity of calling 
rather than a complexity of calling where you're just scattered all over the world. We talked about the power of meditation, not the Eastern kind, the Christian kind, and how that helps us understand the Scriptures in a new light, not just from the knowledge standpoint, but from the life standpoint. We talked about confession that breaks the tyranny of pretense. We talked about no matter how good the Christian community looks, you know, we are just people, flesh and blood, with all kinds of issues, earthy issues in our life, and those things need to be exposed sometimes if they're going to be healed. We talked about fasting for self-control, just the practice of self-control, so that when the minute of performance comes, you can be self-controlled. We talked about celebration and how God commands us to have a good time and that we need that in order to counter the good times of the world. Now those were the disciplines that we enumerated and I mentioned that the Christian who believes that those disciplines are unnecessary to a quality Christian life or who sees those as something that only monks do or maybe at best ministers but not the average Christian. Those are just for the super pious. Or that he lives by faith and not by these works. And he doesn't want to confuse those two. That somebody who approaches life and doesn't see these disciplines for what they really are, at best, will live a shallow Christian life. And for the most part, in their Christian life, will go unchanged. Now they will adopt some covers for their unchangedness. They will go to church or they'll be regular in community group or they may carry a Bible and they'll talk Christian lingo, but underneath the surface, they remain relatively unchanged while the Scripture and the Spirit of God is calling for a radical metamorphosis in your life from one harbor to the next. And in between are those sails that we just mentioned. Now, the disciplines are not something that some 5th century mystic gave me. Those disciplines that I just mentioned are endorsed and lived out by Jesus Himself. He was a man, remember? And the apostles in the New Testament. Their lives tell our lives that these things are essential to change. And Jesus just didn't say, believe in me. He said, follow me. And we need to hear that call today as never before. These disciplines have been practiced, by the way, by all the great men and women of God in history. You know, the Methodists hold up John Wesley as their founder. The reason they're called Methodist is because John Wesley was the one who started practicing these methods for his people. And you know what the methods were? These disciplines that I just told you about. Now today there are many Methodists as well as many others who look at John Wesley's life and admire it and who talk about it, but they can't live it. And you know why they can't live it? Because they don't practice his lifestyle, his methods. That's why. These disciplines are the channels through which the grace and power of God are best released in our life. These disciplines are also witnesses against this present generation for its practical impotence in living out the Christian life as well. You show me a life that is shallow spiritually, 
You show me a life that is entangled in worldliness, that has no ability to overcome itself. These problems that are in here. Show me that kind of life. And I'll show you a person in whose life these disciplines are absent. Or at best, just given lip service to. That's how essential they are. Now what I want to do this morning is to begin here by discussing why it is that today's modern Christian has not connected, so to speak, with these disciplines. And I want to give you an historical analysis, kind of a broad sweeping historical analysis, which I think from time to time is good, as well as just some personal reflections. First, the historical analysis. You know, whether or not you know this, every one of us is a product of our history. There are certain things that we just bring along with us. We're not totally a product of our history, but we are in some ways shaped by our history. In the Christian church, when the Christian church began to move forth after the close of the apostolic age, in other words, after the last apostle died, and it was turned over to the church generally, that church was a persecuted church. It was a church that was a hunted church by the officials of the Roman Empire. Its ranks were decimated. didn't just crucify Christ. Millions of Christians were crucified and killed during the first 300 years because Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. But despite all that, the church kept growing because its numbers were people who were committed, they were disciplined, and they were pure. But then something happened in the 4th century. Matter of fact, in 311 A.D., Constantine, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire, became a Christian. And with his conversion, though some are skeptical about how deeply he was converted, but with his conversion, he issued an edict, the Edict of Toleration, which overnight made Christianity a legal religion, and because he himself practiced it, practiced it, the premier religion in the Roman Empire, overnight. And there was a drastic re reversal of status for all these Christians who just days before had been hunted. And one day they were the scum of society, the next day they were almost the celebrities of society. And they were looked up to, and all of a sudden everybody wanted to be a Christian. Of course, if the emperor was a Christian and he killed non-Christians, you'd want to be a Christian too, wouldn't you? But with everybody now flocking, quote, to the church, and with all the new prosperity, what happened? The quality of Christian life began to suddenly take a drastic decline. Impurities rushed into the church. Heresies rushed into the church. With prosperity came decline in the quality of Christian life. And many of these Christians, before it was legalized, were shocked at this decline in the midst of prosperity. And their response was to withdraw from the church, the formal church, and to withdraw into these cloistered communities, these monastic communities. And that started the great monastic movement in which people withdrew, even though Jesus said we're to be in the world, their response wrongly was to withdraw from the world and practice these uh, rigorous ascetic lifestyles using these disciplines. But you know what took place? Because they weren't in the world. These disciplines used when you're withdrawn from the world don't work right. 
fact, what happens is they begin to be perverted. And that's just what took place in the 3rd century, the 4th century, the 5th century, and so on and so forth. People begin to practice these disciplines as if they were an end in themselves because they weren't involved in the world. So they begin to almost compete with one another pridefully. They wanted to see who could outdo one another in fasting. Some of them withdrew in solitude, not for a few days like Jesus did, but some for 50 years. Now that's solitude, brother. They didn't see anybody. They, you know, Instead of abstinence, they would kind of keep a record of how long it was that they had seen a woman and took pride in that, as if that was something to be admired. It was really a perversion of the times. Simon Stylites built a 60-foot column with a little shelf on it and climbed up there and lived on it for 30 years. That's how he withdrew from the world. Exposed his flesh to rain, cold, heat, bound himself in a rope, and the rope rotted into his flesh, and he rejoiced, and that was kind of hero of the day because he was kind of mortifying the flesh and was supposed to be prideful of that. A monk in Britain hung himself by his armpits for six years in shackles. Now that's not my idea of true Christianity. Is it yours? But that's how it went in those centuries. As people withdrew and made these disciplines of fasting and solitude and stuff, kind of these exaggerated forms in and of themselves, like a bodybuilder who's not just didn't get in shape, and after a while, he just keeps building muscles on muscles, but where is it going? Nowhere. There was no end for this. It was just to do it, for, to do it, to do it. That's it. Well, the time came where that just basically died out. Then in the ninth century, the disciplines reemerged. This time, not as an end in themselves, but as a means to justifying oneself before God. In other words, people suddenly had the misplaced understanding that if I fasted and abstained from things and kept myself from things and gave all my goods away, that if I did enough of that, somehow that would make me right in the eyes of God. And that carried on from the ninth century all the way into the 16th century and perverted the church. Roland Brainton wrote a book about a monk who really struggled in that area, trying to make himself right before God, justified before God using these disciplines. And he writes this about this monk. He said he fasted, sometimes three days on end without a crumb. The seasons of fasting were more consoling to him than the seasons of feasting. Lent was more comforting than Easter. He laid upon himself visuals and prayers in excess of those stipulated by the rule. He cast off his blankets that were permitted him and well nigh froze himself to death. At times he was proud of his sanctity and he would say, I have done nothing wrong today. But at other times these misgivings would arise and he would say, have I fasted enough? Am I poor enough? Have I prayed enough to be right before God? He would then strip himself of all save of what was decent and he believed in later life that these austerities that he had done to himself had done permanent damage to his body. In fact, later on he writes that if he would have continued this pace up for much longer, these things in the way he was practicing them in order to somehow please God so that God would look down upon him and say, okay, you're saved now. He said those things would have killed him. And you know who he was? His name was Martin Luther. And Luther came to a place in all that pain 
One day he read Romans 3 and he saw that, the, that you're justified not by works, but by faith. And it liberated him. And it liberated Europe. And the Reformation took place in that. And God used Luther to restore the church back to the Scriptures. And most importantly, back to being justified before God by faith alone. And that's the banner of the Protestant Reformation. But now I want you to listen carefully. Because this is what affects us. Just like those disciplines got misplaced, they still got misplaced even with a good Reformation. Because you see, with the issue of justification now being righted, the practice of spiritual disciplines became irrelevant. In other words, if I didn't have to do these to be right before God, if I could just believe God and He would accept me as I am, then the natural tendency of carnal man is to say, okay God, I believe You. Now I'm right before You. Now I'll live like I want to live. And that snuffed out the Protestant Reformation a hundred years after it started and continues to shackle many Christians even today. See, if salvation is by faith and not works, then I guess works are just pointless. And most Christians actually think that. Worse yet, these disciplines had become so associated with trying to earn our salvation before God that any mention of these disciplines in times past, just even a few generations ago, had kind of emotional backlash and people would say, you're trying to make works part of our salvation and would reject them. And preachers would preach not just sanctification, but we just got stuck on one aspect of salvation, just justification, justification. person would come and he would hear he's justified Sunday after Sunday, but he would never hear anything else. And so he would remain saved, yes. Unchanged, yes too. And though some of that error has been corrected, the fact remains that 400 years later, in 1989, we still find it difficult to talk about these disciplines because we're not sure where they fit. And that's what I've been trying to do in this series. Help you see where it fits. And as I think about modern Christianity today, and especially the numbers who embrace it in faith, and there are thousands of Christians in America today who have little, if any, change in their life, which led one cynic to say that what Christianity was was an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. You know? I almost feel compelled to pray for another reformation in our day. A different kind of reformation. This time, one that would restore the practice of the spiritual disciplines to sanctification. The way Luther restored faith to justification. Does that make sense? You see, for without these disciplines rightly aligned to sanctification, the church just remains limp. Saved, but limp. Just as without faith rightly understood, people don't know how to have reconciliation with God. And they suffer like Luther suffered 400 years ago. That's a historical Analysis. Now some personal reflections. Let's say we rightly understand these disciplines in regard to sanctification. That doesn't mean necessarily that I, even understanding it, will necessarily connect with these disciplines in making them a part of my life. And if I don't, it will be chiefly because, as I have said over and over in this series, it will be because our goal in life is not godliness. It's greatness. 
It's money. It's power. It's position. The arch enemy of godliness. And if that's the case, and you're wondering where you stand, then one of the ways you can judge yourself and what your heart's desire is, is as you've listened to these series, and I've talked about these disciplines, if those disciplines seem hard to you, if they seem burdensome to you, something that you wouldn't want to do, something that's an inconvenience, a task that I have to do. And by the way, I would never say that, by the way. I would never want you to have to do any of these. Something to do to occasionally relieve my guilt. And I would say your heart is for personal greatness for your life. However you define that. Not for God. And there will be no joy in the practice of any of these disciplines. Now there's some secondary reflections I have in regards to this too, because I may want to do, I may want to be godliness, but maybe in your heart you've decided that you don't need these disciplines. Even though now you all understand it all, you don't need these disciplines to change. You can do it a different way. In other words, rather than study the Bible on your own, you've come up with a better way so you don't have to practice that discipline. What you've decided is, I'll just go listen to great Bible teachers. But let me tell you, though that's good, it can't replace that discipline. You can try it, but it can't. Or you can decide that I can worship God better in nature than I can in community. You know, I'm just getting away. I'm going to be out alone. I don't need to be in a group with leaders and things like that. You can practice that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And you can be out there saying you're worshiping, but you're not going to change. Or you can say, I can, I can change and not change my crowd. You know, I can do that by sheer willpower. I can hold out. Maybe I'll even change them. And so your environment never changes. But you're going to change. I'm telling you. You're deceived. Remember 1 Corinthians 15.33? Be not deceived. What's the harbor from which we sail? Deception. And you can come to church and listen week after week after week, but your life will never lift off. It'll just keep going down that runway. Or you may have problems in your life and you think that you're going to solve those problems not by following the disciplines, but you're going to go get a quick fix. You're just going to believe harder. It won't work. Or you're going to go talk to a counselor. Have one appointment with a counselor. You know, and let him tell you, kind of let him give you your expertise. He may actually give you the right answer, but you won't change. I spent years talking to men and women and giving them right answers in a one appointment time. And I can tell you, it doesn't work. Or you can say, I'm going to get next to a spiritual leader and kind of let his power ease into me, you know? So I kind of associate with him and I admire him and I listen to him and I'm encouraged by him and I've kind of tried to get around him so he can kind of keep my, keep my spiritual equilibrium, but it's not going to work. I'm not going to really change. Or I may say I'm going to have an emotional experience so I go to a seminar or whatever and I may feel great after I work, walk out of there. I may feel like I can take on the world after a weekend retreat. But you are not changed. You're not. And there's no reason to keep deceiving yourself. These things are hard, but they're right. And so let me say it one last time. The spiritual disciplines 
are those activities that the Scriptures endorse and document as the means by which we will, and this is what's exciting, we will change. We are saved without them. Saved in the sense of justification. But we cannot be saved without them in the sense of sanctification. We cannot be. And the Scriptures are that clear. Now what I want to do is demonstrate that with a fairly lengthy example, if I can. A real life example that I think most of us, in one form or another, one degree or another, have struggled with. And I'm going to put it in a strong degree, just so you can feel the tension here. I could have chosen any issue. I could have chosen anger. I could have chosen greed, your search for greed. I could have chosen your perfectionistic spirit that keeps binding you up and keeps you so narrow and immature. I could have chosen your immature emotions. I could have chosen envy, money, any of those things. And the process would in some ways be the same. So you can add what you want to into this. But I've chosen one that a lot of people have struggled with in our sensually oriented world, and that's lust. And I want to walk you through two different experiences. Let's say that you're a teenager, and before becoming a Christian, sexual impurity was kind of glorified in your life. It's glorified everywhere in our society, isn't it? So it's hard not to have it glorified in your own life. And as you got older, as you moved into college, you began to view pornography with some of your friends. Uh those sensual images through movies and stuff were kind of embedded on your psyche. A lot of your dating relationships had a physical emphasis more than anything else. And so you went through those times and struggled with those, maybe you enjoyed and reveled in those things. And then you got married one day, and there was something about getting married you thought, that's going to put all that behind me, I've got a wife. And after being married a few months, you find to your surprise that those Old feelings, those lusts, they didn't go away. They didn't change. They didn't somehow just die off. In fact, in many ways, they may have increased. And as you move into marriage and through some seasons of marriage, you know, that you may find yourself kind of dipping into that every so often, maybe on a business trip or whatever. And, and for some, it starts growing. It becomes kind of a secret world. You begin to play on the side that somehow has gotten revealed through a lot of our public figures today. But you might even feel driven to it in raw and raw forms over time. And after a while, you kind of feel cheap, like it's almost driving you rather than you driving it. I know people like that. No matter how good we look, lust is a big issue in our world today. Then you become a Christian. There's a lot of reasons for why you became a Christian, but let's say you became a Christian. And in the midst of being a Christian, the life of God, the Scripture says, is imparted to you. The Holy Spirit comes into you and He plants all kinds of seeds in your innermost being that He wants them to grow. And one of those seeds is purity. And in the midst of that new salvation, you feel forgiven, you feel cleansed, it's emotional. You feel like things are going to be different. And they are for a couple of months. Or maybe even a year. But then the old haunt starts stalking you again. And you begin to feel almost like it's more powerful now after Christ than before you were a Christian and you're not sure why. And you make errors and you start dipping into it again and feel driven by it again and you feel embarrassed by it. And you know, now you're part of the church, you're coming to church every Sunday, you're in a community group by this time and you're so embarrassed and you look around and everybody looks so good. 
got big smiles on their faces, they're dressed right, their lives look together, and you say to yourself in the secrecy of your own heart, nobody has this problem, I bet. Nobody probably ever even has it. Look how pure they look. Something's wrong with me. I'm weird. And so you're not going to tell anybody this problem. And so, the, and so what you determine as a young Christian is you're going to beat it through sheer willpower. But you go out and, and as it comes up, you say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But as you say, I'm not going to do it, it's like pumping up a basketball. The problem just keeps getting bigger. The temptation just stronger. The more you say, I'm not. And all willpower ultimately can do in and of itself is just stop you from doing something. It can't transform you. And so that lust keeps ramming up against that will, and you may hold it for a time, but finally the will gets exhausted, and it runs over you. So you begin to doubt whether you're even a Christian. Or what's worse, you begin to doubt whether Christianity works. And you start playing this cover-up. You still go, and you like what others can do, but you kind of play this game. The Christian glaze game. Where you smile on the outside, and you're dying from depression and desperation on the inside because of this particular problem. Prayer seems empty. You open up your Bible and when you read it, it just doesn't do anything for you. And in time, you have some options. You can either keep playing the game in a deeper form. You can quit altogether, church, and say it doesn't work and throw yourself into that. You can legitimize that lust and do what some Christians do and say it's okay for me. This area is okay. It's right for me. It may not be for others, but it is for me. Or you can get caught and embarrassed and maybe leave the church on that. See, that's, that in many ways is how we've dealt with problems. Now I want to change the scenario and go back and pick up with this young man who's just become a Christian and let's track it a different way. Let's say he comes into the church and he's in a church and over the weeks, instead of hearing justification, you know, he was in a church that just preached justification. He kept hearing he was okay. He was right with God. But he would go out saying, I'm not right. But now he comes into a church where he understands justification and sanctification. It starts making sense to him. He can put some of his problems in that sanctification area and still understand he's right with God. And on a particular Sunday, somebody stands up in the church and confesses the discipline of confession that he struggled with lust and pornography. And that one of the things that helped him was going and sharing that with a friend and having that friend minister to him. And it really helped him, gave him accountability, and gave him some direction. And so you're hearing that as a young Christian over there. So you go and you pick out a member of your community group, meet with him, and you say, George, i got to share something with you about my life. And you tell him that and you expect him to fall over in a dead faint or go running out going, heathen, heathen, you know, something, you know, or throw water on you, call you anathema. But instead, George sits there and he's got this big smile on his face and you can't understand it. And he says, Bill, I understand. I've had that same problem. God accepts you. And there's some ways to handle that. And that confession is good for you. And even as you said it, it just felt so... It like, it like the tyranny of silence is over. And you felt more relaxed in that moment. And you say, I'm still acceptable. And he says, let me tell you how I can help you. Let's get together and pray once a week. And he says, we can study the Scripture on it. In fact, I'd give you some Scriptures and you can start using it for your quiet time. 
So you start getting up in the morning, and rather than just having a meaningless quiet time, you start opening and studying and meditating and massaging scriptures on lust. You read Romans 14, 15, and you think about it for 15 minutes or more, where it says, make no provision for the flesh or the lust thereof. Or how about Psalm 101, verse 3, where it says, I will set nothing worthless before my eyes. It will not fasten its grip on me. And so through the day as you meditate, you take a little card, Psalm 101, and you meditate on it through the day. And you say, yeah, you start thinking of ways it gets to you. And so you start taking some steps. You come up with some applications. You go home and you call store cable and you say, hey, I want you to take the movie channels out of my home. You make a commitment with your friend that you're not going to go see any movies, PG-13 and up. Now some of your friends are going to cry, legalist! But you know you're right in the midst of Romans 14. And Romans 14 says you are weak and you'll never be anything but weak. And for those things that may be even lawful to others, they're not lawful to you. So you don't do them. And when you go on those business trips, you ask your friend to call you every night you're away and just talk to you for 10 minutes. So you start doing that. And suddenly, though there's still failures and there's still some confession going on, it gets a little better. It gets a little easier over time. You begin to pray. and uh, You hear about somebody taking a day off for prayer. And so you take a particular day and you go out to Lake Maumelle and you're just praying and talking to God, not just about this issue, but other issues. And in the midst of talking to Him and reading the Scripture, suddenly you have what I call a penetration. The Holy Spirit helps you understand something that a counselor could have helped you understood, but never like this. And that is, you begin to suddenly realize, just through meditation, that most of your lustful times come when you felt rejected by someone. Or where you've been made to feel inferior. And you begin to associate that lust is only the tip of the problem. The root of the problem is I don't feel good about myself. And when times come when I don't feel good about myself, I get rejected at that sales meeting, I tend to want to escape in a little fantasy world and make myself feel good, kind of, kind of an escapist technique. And you begin to see that. And it's a revelation to you. And you share it with your friend. He goes, yeah. And he says, let's start doing some study on your value to God. So for the next few months, you have these things where you just keep saying, seeing these verses that keep telling you how significant you are to the kingdom and how much God wants to use you to make a difference in this world. And how in doing that, God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. So you begin to serve. You get involved with international students. And you, over time, get to be a community group leader. And you're working hard. And you're making sacrifices. And all that. And in the midst of that, one Sunday, now we're three years later. And one Sunday, a young man, a college student, stands up in the back of the auditorium and he just says, I just want to confess, I'm tired of living a lie. I'm into pornography and it just killed me. And he's sitting there sharing his heart, brokenhearted with the congregation. And as he's in the midst of doing that, and he's in the midst of sharing that, all of a sudden, you realized that that incredible problem that used to stalk you and hunt you down and crucify you, you hadn't had that problem in months. And it just dawns on you. It's almost like a metamorphosis. 
And you realize, yeah, you've been doing this and things have been growing and new issues, and you're different. And there had been failures, yeah, but, but, but that's, not a need, that's not a big issue anymore in your life. And all of a sudden, you know you've changed. You have really changed. And in the, in the moment, though, he's confessing, and you've got something that you're going to tell him after the service. In the midst of that, it's like the Holy Spirit reminds you, even in that moment, yeah, it took work, and it took time, and it took my grace but you are really changed. And you know what? We're only starting. There are all kinds of glories out there to be penetrated. There are worlds that you know not of that are far more glorious than than the escape of lust. It's the enjoyment of righteousness. Now let me tell you, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. The primary goal of this book is to change your life. Not in a faked way, not in a superficial way, in a real way. And there are positive benefits to you in being changed. And I want to look at that as we close here this morning. You might turn over to 2 Timothy. Uh, Excuse me, 2 Peter. I'm sorry. Remember in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul told Timothy, he said, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for this discipline holds promise, not only for this life, but also in the life to come. That's why on your outlines, I've asked the question, well, what will this discipline lead to? Well, in this life, it leads to change. In the next life, it leads to reward. But I want to probe those just for a second, a little more deeply, in looking at these Scriptures. You see, in this life, change means that I actually begin to become, not fully ever, but I begin to actually become like Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, in my life, there is freedom, and there is power, and there is dignity, and there is a satisfaction in life that goes beyond head knowledge about Christianity. It's real Christianity I'm experiencing. That's what I'm talking. Did you know that's what 2 Peter chapter 1 is all about? The whole chapter is this process of change, of adding something to faith. Notice in verse 5, he says, he, well, in verse 4, he says, we are to become, the goal is to become partakers of the divine nature. That means to experience it. Now, how do you experience it? Look at verse 5. You experience it by applying with all diligence to your faith a number of things. Did you know those number of things that are listed here are all disciplines? In other words, it's not just faith. Peter says you've got to apply something. You've got to add something to your faith. It's faith plus. And then he lists what those pluses are. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness. And then you finally get to where you're experiencing godliness through that path. And only then can you really begin, as it says, the last two qualities... Be kind to your brother and to love your brother. But now here's what I want you to notice. Look at verse 8. He says, For if these qualities, what qualities? All those things that were listed to be added to faith that requires your work and requires time. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he who lacks these qualities is what? He's blind. He's short-sighted. And you know what he's forgotten? He's forgotten that the goal of the Christian life is not to be forgiven of your sins. The goal of the Christian life is that plus being purified from your sins. And you've forgotten that, he says. But then notice verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, which means work all the more hard to make certain about your calling and choosing. For as long as you practice these things, practice, 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 you will never stumble. And did you see what he just said about your life in the present? You will not be useless, you will not be unfruitful, and you will not fall flat on your face. And I take Peter saying, if I could add those things in my life, and then we're not talking about perfection, but I'm never going to fail at my marriage. I'm never going to fail at raising my children. I'm not going to fail in my finances. I'm not going to fail in my personal life. I'm not going to fail in my business. I'm not going to fail in anything. I will never fall down. But I'll finish the race powerfully. That's why godliness is profitable for this life. You'll never stumble. It's also profitable in the life to come. I want you to turn over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to pick up where Paul is talking about justification. Look at verse 10. I want everybody to follow along. I'm almost finished. But I want you to follow on these verses because it's so important that you read them with me. Not just listen to me quote them, but read them with me. Verse 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But at each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now let me put a period there. And I would write the word justification. The only foundation in anybody's life as a believer is Jesus. That we've received by faith alone. It is the foundation of every Christian life here. That's His part. That I receive by faith. But now, Paul turns to our part in the very next verse, verse 12. Now, if any man builds upon that foundation, now who's building? Not Jesus. You are in cooperation with Jesus Christ. If any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he's talking about the works we do, the things that we do. In fact, he says it in the next verse. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. What day? The day of eternity. The day of judgment. The day we stand before an all-knowing, all-seeing God who reviews everything that we've done for us at His judgment seat. On that day, every man's work will be tested. That uses the figure here with fire. Now notice, the quality of your life will be tested with fire. Verse 14, If any man's work which he has built upon this foundation remains, he will receive a reward. Blessing upon blessing. I mean, God's already blessed us in that He gave us a life where we never stumbled. 
We had a good marriage. We had a good life. It was satisfying, free. We were changed. We advanced the glory of God on this planet. We were useful to Him, fruitful for Him. And that should have been good enough, but not for God. We get to eternity, and He reviews those things, and those works that we did by His grace as we cooperated. He says, I want to give you a reward for that. Now, I don't know what all those are going to be. But they're going to be exciting, I can guarantee you that. He'll receive a reward. But now some of us who are saved, justified, who chased greatness our whole life, always kept saying, I'll get around to godliness. We might be like the man in verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, and let's just say for the sake of exaggeration, you're standing there having been, become a Christian but lived your whole life for you, and God tests your works and burns everything up. There's nothing left. You're standing there in your skivvies. But you know what you'll be standing on? A foundation. Ever see a fire burn a house to the ground? There's nothing left, but there is the foundation. But when you stand there and saved, you'll be saved. But you know what you're going to feel like? It tells you. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. Those who tell you it's just going to be all good feelings in eternity are not teaching the Scriptures. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that if you are justified by Jesus Christ, we will all be in the same place in eternity. But we won't be all alike in eternity. There are going to be some of us who are going to look different. And part of that difference is because of the standing that we had before God because of a faithful life lived on earth. And there are going to be others of, of us who will feel a loss of that standing, though saved, because we chose to turn our boat around and go right back into the harbor of greatness. Deceived, enslaved, and disobedient. Now I want to sum all this up by reading one last Scripture. Matthew 19. And you know, Matthew 19 is a good place to end. And the verse we're going to look at is starting in verse 27. But as you look, get to that passage, I want you to look right above in your Bibles to the verses above verse 27, and you'll see the story of the rich young ruler and how apt that is to end. Because here was this man who came, and he was a believer in God, the Scripture says, and he had a lot of money and a lot of things, and he had been a lot of places, and he had a great image, but he was empty. He was empty. His life really wasn't fun and joyous. He's missing something. He came to Jesus and he said, why? And Jesus said, it's your things. It's the goal you have in your life. Give it up. But you remember what happened to him? He couldn't give it up. For he owned much property. And he had many things and he wanted to give attention to those things because that was his goal. And Jesus attacked him at his heart. And so he turned and walked away. But now here's what I love about the apostles and their absolute honesty, how refreshing it is. As, they walk, as this guy walks away with all his jewels, 
Peter sizes him up. And you know, Peter is always so honest. He turns to, in verse 27 to Jesus and he says this, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Now, if you're honest, you didn't follow Jesus Christ for nothing, did you? And in this life, when I'm in the midst of a temptation that the world has put up there that looks so good and I want to bite into it, hook, line, and sinker, I want to be just like Peter. Just like him. Because I was thinking he was probably tempted as he watched that guy go away. Just like him, looking at that temptation right there, I can grab it. And what I want to do is turn to the living Christ and say, if I don't do this, what then will there be for me? Don't, isn't that true for us? And you know what? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say nothing. Just do it. Because there's reward in living this life for Jesus Christ. Here's what he says, verse 28. Truly I say to you, that you who have followed Me in the regeneration, that's the future, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, and by the way, when He comes the next time, He doesn't come as a servant. He comes to take over. When He sits on this glorious throne, He looks at these twelve men. Now this isn't for us. This is for them. This is their reward. He says, you will sit on twelve thrones. That's right. You fishermen. You guys who are worthless, basically, to society. You're going to sit on twelve thrones having given that up for me. And you are going to judge every Jew that ever lived. That's your place in eternity. Do you want it? That's pretty powerful, isn't it? But now He turns to us. See, because we go, wow, 12 thrones. What about me? What's in this for me? That's the next verse. And everyone, that's who me is, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms, he's picking out the things that are most valuable to us, the things that we put around us to make us feel good. Anybody who gives those up for my name's sake, shall receive many times as much and shall inherit life eternal. And then he closes with a great way to close this entire series. He says, but many who are first, who have it all, and they just saw the rich young ruler walk away, shall be last in the kingdom. There will be a last place for the saved and the last will be first. You have a choice in which one of those lifestyles you want. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.